Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Ageism refers to the stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination towards others or oneself based on age. For older adults, ageism is associated with earlier death, poorer physical and mental health, and slower recovery from disability. Today, my guest is Dr. Tracy Gendron, gerontologist and chair of the Department of Gerontology at Virginia Commonwealth University. She is also the author of Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. She will discuss how aging and ageism are related and why older adults are often the targets of ageism. She will also give examples of how ageism is expressed towards older adults. And finally, she will talk about what can be done to reduce and eliminate ageism in our society. So welcome, Tracy, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, well, let's start with the first question. Explain exactly what happens to people as they age and why is it considered a complex process? I love this as an opening question because I think that the complexity of the aging experience and the ways that we age are actually really directly related to how we might experience ageism. Aging itself, when you think about it, is not only complex, it kind of has contradictory mechanisms that happen at the same time. So as we age, we are both growing in certain ways we are expanding our knowledge in certain ways. We are also declining in certain ways. Um, it's about growth. It's about maintenance. It's about adaptation. It's about loss. It's kind of multidirectional and it's multidimensional, meaning that we experience a lot of different things at the same time. As we grow, we certainly develop new skills and new abilities, and we we bring that to our, our emotions and to our social roles and to our abilities to contribute and to be happier. At the same time, we, aging is also a physical experience. So, and physically, our bodies continue to evolve, continue to change. And in later adulthood, we will experience some level of decline, some level of loss of some abilities that we used to be able to do. So aging is a holistic, biopsychosocial, spiritual process but yet what's interesting about it is what we're most familiar with when we talk about aging is aging as decline. That's what leads us right into ageism. Right, exactly. And I guess, you know, we tend to think about aging more for older people or older adults. Yet, in, in fact, 
everybody is aging as it, as time goes on even young people are aging they're getting older but i guess we don't apply that term to younger people or even middle-aged people w- would you agree yes that is exactly right and i think that is the perfect connection to starting to think about how deeply ingrained and invisible ageism is in fact you know that was my aha moment about 10 years ago when I first started to realize that when people would ask me why I became a gerontologist, I would tell them it was because I had a passion for working with the aging population. And one day I started to realize why when I say aging, do I mean older people? I'm aging, a toddler is aging, an infant is aging, a teenager is aging. So why do we use that term to talk about other people? old people. And that's when it really started to dawn on me how we use this us versus them kind of thinking when it comes to aging or being older. And yet if we break down that barrier and realize there's no such thing as somebody that isn't aging, it becomes relevant to all of us at all stages in our life. So that's a good segue into ageism, but talk more about a broader term of ageism and why particularly it's directed towards older adults. Yeah, so ageism in its broadest sense is assumptions, judgments, stereotypes about aging and older people and sometimes younger people, and that feeds bias and it feeds discrimination. So we have a situation where different age groups are claiming superiority over other age groups. But ageism is is much more complicated than just, um, I don't like being around older people, or I feel that older people don't have the, the requisite skills or knowledge. It's also about how we communicate about aging and what it means to be an older person. We call that relational ageism, the way that we often compliment, and I put compliment in air quotes, each other to say, hey, you don't look your age, you haven't aged a bit, um, and how that is received with gratitude and received with thanks. That's a form of ageism in which we're communicating it and we're perpetuating it over and over. Ageism is also about internalized processes, how we feel about ourselves as aging people. That is also ageism, um, being afraid or fearful of your own aging. And then ageism is also within institutions. It's within the larger culture. It is really everywhere, but yet it's so normalized that it is practically invisible. And as you pointed out so well in your opening remarks, there's really dire consequences of ageism for people of all ages. But for older adults in particular, it really removes opportunities for purpose and for meaning making. It really affects our physical health and our emotional well-being. It can lead to isolation and loneliness. So the consequences are, are deep and profound. And just to put a fine point on that, ageism can be targeted towards young people as well. Yes, it absolutely can. And one of the things that people don't realize um, is that when we do discriminate against younger people, and we can do that in a variety of different ways, thinking maybe somebody's too young to understand something, giving in to generational bias or rhetoric, like the example that young people who we tend to call millennials, even though they're often not millennials, are entitled or lazy um, or privileged, or we need to change our workplace for them. When we give in to all of that generational rhetoric and ageism towards younger people, we are actually feeding their ageism towards older people. So it's a cycle 
And when we contribute in it either way, we're actually perpetuating that cycle farther. Well, let's move on to attitudes, because I think that this is important. And I know you mentioned this in your book about how attitudes about aging form the basis of ageism. And I believe you mentioned there were three components of these attitudes. You want to talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, the three components of attitudes are cognitive, affective, and behavioral. And I'll break it down so that it's really easy to understand. The cognitive part of an attitude is what we think. So if we think, for example, that all older people are bad drivers, that's an attitude that we have, and that's at the cognitive level. It then translates to the affective level, which is how we feel. So if I think that all older people are bad drivers, I may feel afraid to be in the car with an older driver. And then the final is the behavioral, and that's how we act on those attitudes. So I may think older people are bad drivers, feel afraid to be in the car, and at a behavioral level, I might actively take the keys away from someone. So you can see how those components of those attitudes can really lead towards that slippery slope towards discrimination, right? We're taking an assumption, we're taking a prejudice, and then not only are we thinking it, we're internalizing it by feeling it, and then very often we're acting on it. And that obviously leads right to discrimination. And you also mentioned another term, which is ableism. So ableism is discrimination based on level of ability, and that can be either physical ability or cognitive ability. And whereas ageism is discrimination based on age, I think that ageism and ableism really go hand in hand when we're talking about ageism towards older people. We talked about aging as being a process that includes growth, that includes maintenance, and that also includes decline. If we live long enough, we are all going to experience some level of physical decline. So it goes hand in hand with ageism, because the longer you live, the more likely you are to experience some limitations or challenges. The truth is the world isn't really built for people with different abilities. People move very fast. Environments are not accessible. Even eating in a restaurant can demonstrate this intersection between ageism and ableism. If you have ever gone to a a restaurant that has some ambiance to it, it has dim lights um, that is supposed to be, you know, kind of romantic, and it has a menu that has swirly font and very small font, and it has music playing in the background, that environment is literally built to enable ageism and ableism. It's harder to read the menu. It's harder to navigate the environment because it's harder to hear people because of the background noise. So these are some of the ways that that ageism and ableism intersect and why I think that we really need to pay attention to the relationship between them um, when it comes to talking about ageism. Is there a certain time that ageism became more evident uh, when, when people started experiencing ageism? And if so, were there especially some factors that contributed to it? What what do we need to know? That's a great question. And that actually is the question that prompted me to write the book, Um, or at least one of the questions that prompted me to write the book. I wanted to kind of wrap my own head around, you know, when did this actually begin? When did we start to see 
that aging was looked at as a state of decline only, as a disease state? When did older people start to be seen as without value? And what I found was really interesting, and that's that aging is aging has been ageism has been complicated because aging has always been complicated. So even when you go back to the very beginning of of history, and I was looking at um, religious texts and ancient cultures, and we see a reverence for older people, but at the same time, we also see references to fighting aging, not with those words, but basically to how to eliminate wrinkles. The first hieroglyphic was an old man leaning over with a cane or using a staff. So we saw these contradictory examples of reverence for older people and yet fear of the aging process as decline. And from there, you know, it kind of just kept evolving and taking on a life of its own. I think the turning point was really near the Industrial Revolution, though. And there's a couple things that happened around that point. Earlier than the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the printing press actually changed a lot. When you think about it, older people used to be the keepers of knowledge. So in, in your local villages, you would go to the elders for the answers to history of your area, to potential knowledge about what was safe to eat and what wasn't, where things were, how things worked. And then the printing press came, and that knowledge could be really easily mass-produced. So that was kind of a significant shift, whereas we didn't need that history and learned experience of elders anymore. And then in the Industrial Revolution, when we started to value things like productivity um, and contribution in a different way, family structures started to change, people moved away from farms into cities, that's when we really started to see uh, more ageist sentiment, and especially within the workplace. And I suspect that that's also when the so-called ageism stereotypes began as well. And what are some examples that begin to emerge? Yeah, that is exactly right. That is when we started to see older workers as less productive, as unable to adapt to change, as unable to kind of go with the new ways of doing things. And I think it really did start in earnest in the workplace, as you said. Um, but also, there was some shift in caregiving at the time as well. So in that Industrial Revolution period, we started to see childhood as a period of life where we wanted to nurture and protect children. And parenthood became seen as a time that was filled with challenges, but also great rewards. Yet caregiving, the term that we use as caregiving, became more associated with caring for elders, which started to become more and more institutionalized and more and more associated with being a burden. So we started to see not only older people in the workplace as seen as, you know, not up to not up to par in terms of efficiency and knowledge, but we also started to discriminate against older people and start to view them in terms of they were a burden to take care of. So these things kind of coalesced all at the same time to really take a fork in the road to where we are today. And I'm wondering if the term retirement also was a part of the scenario with respect to uh, ageism. And and has it, in fact, contributed to ageism? I guess that would probably be a best way to, to ask you about that. I certainly think so. Retirement 
was designed as a mechanism to get older workers out of the workforce and sometimes to reward them for uh, a career where they contributed to a certain profession, certain institution. Um, and this was like in the early 1900s that we started to kind of create the social institution of retirement with pension plans and all of that. Um, I think there were certainly good intentions behind the term retirement, but what happened was we started to turn this social institution into a stage of life. And I think that that's problematic. You know, when somebody tells me that they're retired and they introduce themselves to me and I say, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And the first thing they'll say is, well, I'm retired. The only thing that that actually tells me about this person is that they used to work in some career. It doesn't tell me a whole lot about who they are and who they want to become. And I think that became the problem with this concept of retirement as a life stage. We are more than just our work identities. And because we continue to grow and we continue to evolve, and this concept of retirement is based on withdrawal from something, I see it as kind of incomplete. It's just not enough in my mind. Um, to describe an entire period of life. So I see this concept of retirement as lacking. And then I also see it as potentially classist and ableist and ageist. Um, some people don't want to retire. They get a lot of meaning from work. Some people can't retire because they need the income. So to make the assumption that that's the right path for everyone is also problematic in my mind. And you had also mentioned about in the business world that ageism affects economic output and consumer spending. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah. Uh, so ageism really does have quite an impact in our economic forecasts. Older people are often kept out of jobs. And when they are kept out of jobs, that actually takes away their ability to contribute economically. And that, that could be a lot of loss. Age discrimination in the workplace is a huge and rising problem, and that can cost companies millions of dollars. Um, and in fact, we've seen over the past decade, those numbers of age discrimination claims in the workplace continue to rise. Um, not recruiting and retaining the right people in jobs because of an underlying ageist belief or thought can also be a problem that can affect economic output. I've done research that looked at people who work with older adults and asked them all kinds of questions about their attitudes to their own aging, whether they like to work with older people. And what I found was we tend to hire people that may not like working with older people, which is a problem. But then on top of that, people who have negative attitudes towards their own aging are not as happy in their jobs. They're not as satisfied and they're not as likely to stay. So we know that recruiting and retaining a good workforce saves money. We know that a bad hire spends a lot of money, excess money. So I think we actually have a recruitment and retention issue that truly has ageism at the core, but yet we, we haven't really recognized that and started to ask people the right questions. And then aside from that, I think that businesses are losing out on the opportunity to develop products and services that older people actually want rather than what we think they need. And I think that that is really impactful. There is so much space for innovation 
if we started to look instead of older people needing security, needing um, safety, things like, you know, life alert, which is great, um, and glasses and walkers, which are wonderful. But if we start to look past that and we look for opportunities for older adults to become self-actualized, to make meaning, to belong to community, think of all the innovation that there would be in that space and all the opportunity that there would be to actually make money. Well, and one thing that also comes to mind in terms of whether or not an older adult stays in their job or what the attitudes towards them are, there's this big situation with respect to health benefits too. Sometimes people are forced to stay in some kind of a job if they are allowed to do so. And if not, then getting coverage, if they do have some kind of a health problem, that can be difficult too, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be very curious to see with this great resignation that we are currently experiencing, how the workforce will be shaken up by that Um, and whether we will see, you know, maybe people taking a better look at ageism to kind of figure out how that may uh, entice people to stay in jobs, how it may entice older workers to stay longer uh, and how it may kind of break down some of those stereotypes that we had of older people at work. So it's it's certainly a complicated issue. As ageism, again, I'm referring to your book here, you had talked about ageism contributing to civil and social rights of older adults. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I believe that ageism is a, a civil rights issue. I think it strips us of the right to age with meaning and purpose. It strips us of the right to be an active participant in society, the right to be heard and valued for our contributions at all ages. So I think it truly does contribute to inequity because it contributes to social exclusion in our neighborhoods, um, in our industries, in our businesses. If we don't have an inclusive and welcoming environment for people of all ages, then we are inevitably contributing to the exclusion of older people. And I do think that's a fundamental civil rights issue. We're almost ready for a break, but I wanted to get a little bit into the topic about the self-directed or internalized ageism. We've talked a lot already about how externally people react towards older people and stereotypes of ageism, this kind of thing. But what does it mean internally? How does it impact older adults as they think about their own aging? Internalized ageism uh, is how we feel about ourselves as older people. And what's interesting to me is that the older people today have been living pretty blindly in an ageist culture for a really long time. So it's no wonder that we have fears and we have negative attitudes about ageism. In fact, when I was doing a project to create a video on ageism, I started to look around to see how far back I could find a magazine or some kind of periodical that had some kind of anti-ageist message on it. And I found a ladies' home journal from 1959 that had on the cover, look 20 years younger. So to me, that was an indication that older people today have grown up in this environment. They have grown up seeing the ads to fight aging, to look younger. And that takes a toll because that's how we internalize 
those attitudes, and that's how we fear growing older. So today, I think it's not uncommon to see people of all ages, um, and especially older people, really being some of the, the culprits of internalized ageism and expressing that they don't want to get old. They don't want to be around older people. And I think it's also because the way that we have devalued and stigmatized what it means to be old. I have very often heard an older person say things like, I'm not old, I'm just mature, or I'm seasoned, or I'm vintage, or I'm experienced. Um, and that is internalized ageism, because essentially we're using what I call a Band-Aid word to cover up the fact that there is still a lot of stigma and shame with that word old. If we don't want to identify as such, have to think about why that may be. And it's because we have stigmatized it. So we use something else to kind of cover it up and disassociate from that state of being old. So I, I think that's a very, very common thing. And it's completely understandable given the culture that we have lived in. But now we have the opportunity to raise awareness that that actually is a reflection of internalized ageism. And maybe instead of using a Band-Aid word to just say, hey, I'm old and I'm okay with that. Well, and that's a good way to pause here. And we'll be talking more about that after the break. But in case you tuned in late, uh, we're talking with Dr. Tracy Gendron, who is a gerontologist, and she is the author of Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Tracy Gendron, who is a gerontologist, and she is also the author of a book called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. And Tracy, before the break, we talked about this self-directed or internalized ageism, and I had mentioned that in my introduction about what that impact can be on older adults. But Talk a little bit more about the symptoms and the conditions that can result from a, an older adult being a victim of ageism. I would be happy to. You know, it's it's interesting to me that we have a lot of available knowledge about public health risk factors. So we readily available know that smoking is bad for your health. We know that not exercising is not good for our heart. We know that not eating well is not good for us. We even know that not using sunscreen is a risk factor. And yet we have about 20 to 25 years worth of data about how ageism impacts our health and our longevity. And yet that's not readily available knowledge. We don't really talk about that as much, but it is. It is actually just as dangerous. So bad attitudes, negative attitudes about your own aging can lead to increased risk of chronic disease. It can lead to slower recovery time from illness. It could even be connected with an increased risk for biomarkers for dementia disorders, 
It can lead to loneliness and depression, and it could actually prevent us from seeking health care. And if that's not enough for people, there was a study done out of Yale in 2002 that was published that showed that people who had positive views of their own aging lived seven and a half years longer than people with negative views of their aging. And that was after accounting for their gender and their income and their loneliness and their functional health. So it's not a small contribution. There's actually some, some really impactful consequences of just attitudes about our own aging. And it's not something that we talk about that much. And I want to take that one step further. If an older adult has these particular symptoms and have to receive some kind of healthcare treatment or be involved with a physician or even in the hospital or, or wherever, isn't ageism also uh, very prevalent or can be prevalent uh, in the healthcare system as well? It absolutely can. Um, and as I said before, not seeking health care is, is one symptom of that. If we feel that, well, I'm just old, so I should have aches or pains, or I should be depressed, or I should uh, be losing my memory, then we have kind of given in to some of those myths of aging that prevent us from seeking out care. So it can certainly be a barrier. But then when you look at the healthcare system itself, the system isn't built to adequately serve older people, and especially those with complex health conditions. We tend to value and reward productivity and efficiency. So for that reason, we don't see a lot of people choosing to go into geriatrics. Geriatricians, and let me specify, geriatrics is the branch of medicine um, that's focused on the treatment of older people and chronic conditions in older age. Geriatricians don't earn as much as other specialty areas, and med students will often say they don't want to focus on geriatrics because they would prefer to focus on curative medicine. So it's a, it's a shift in mindset. We also don't necessarily embed enough geriatrics curriculum into the training for healthcare professionals to make it something that people have foundational knowledge. So there's a lot of ways that ageism can, can impact the healthcare system. One other way is that ageism can look like being ignored or having symptoms dismissed. Um, and that kind of speaks to that lack of trust that people have, where it makes them not even want to seek care. And we also see an undertreatment of pain because they just associate, well, you're just old, so you should expect it. So I think there's a lot of different layers of how we see ageism present specifically within healthcare. And kind of what I'm hearing is, is that the outcome, whereas what you were just saying, that the uh, traditional way of looking at healthcare is curative, that there might be other choices which are made aware maybe by the older person themselves, maybe in terms of end of life or other circumstances, which sometimes are not accepted as well. Exactly. And have you ever, you know, experienced yourself or gone to an appointment with a loved one and experienced a physician talking to the, the caregiver instead of the, the patient themselves? Yes. Um, yeah, so that's yet another way that people feel as if they are being dismissed within that, that their wants, that their needs, that truly they're not really even able to fully communicate um, with the physician what it is that they are looking for. Another aspect of ageism can occur right 
in someone's own home or at least within their family. And talk more about that. How What is meant by ageism in the family and how it impacts how uh, older adults are sometimes treated by younger family members, whether it's adult children or even caregivers, could be even a, maybe a younger spouse or partner or whatever. What have you seen in that in that realm? Yeah, this is a complicated question. Um, and of course, family dynamics will differ as all family situations differ. But in general, when older people um, are not valued, they may be excluded from conversations and even decision-making conversations that involve them. And I think that can be you know, a real indicator of ageism within the family. I can also see people fearing becoming a burden as we talked about earlier with that relationship between caregiving and burden when it comes to older people, um, and then not express freely to their family members what it is that they really want, what their, their goals are for their aging. I've witnessed many a conversation where it comes to living situations and whether a child or a spouse or whomever might think it's time for someone to, to move to an assisted living or to someplace that has a little bit more support. Um, and an older person might not be included in that conversation. These are all ways that ageism can present within the family dynamic and can keep us from having really important conversations. You know, I think fear is a barrier sometimes to having these conversations about what we do or don't want for our future. This comes when it talking about housing, when it comes to living wills, when it comes to um, our final wishes. It, it, there's a lot of fear associated with that, and and rightly so. We fear loss, we fear change, but if we let ageism and that fear drive those conversations, we're not letting others take part in what could be a very meaningful discussion that actually makes those end-of-life decisions easier and better and not making decisions in times of crisis. Right, exactly. I wanted to turn to another aspect which has a great influence on all of us, especially now in this digital or technological era. It's called, I believe, cultural ageism. And talk about that and and why is it also referred to as the anti-aging movement? What do we need to know here? Sure. Cultural ageism is the way that ageism is embedded in all of the layers of our, of our culture. And, and you can think about that in a lot of different ways. So the, the magazines that we see, the billboards that we see, the TV shows, the books that we read, the movies we watch, the songs that we listen to, they're actually very often filled with ageist lyrics, ageist assumptions um, that often go unnoticed. So cultural ageism is kind of the air that we breathe. It's just out there everywhere. And the anti-aging movement or the anti-aging industry has really capitalized on that and leaned in by trying to define for us what beauty is, what success is. Um, they thrive from shaming people ultimately into believing that the physical signs of aging are something to be fought, that aging itself is something that we need to battle. Um, and, and all of those messages that are out there within the culture make it very easy for us to internalize those beliefs 
um, and then participate in that relational ageism, feed it back and forth to each other, like I was saying earlier in the podcast. So it, it's everywhere and it's quite ubiquitous, which is what makes it very dangerous. And would you even go so far as to say that the media reinforces the fear of aging by these messages that are transmitted to our society? I think the media has, and I think when it comes to ageism, and more than just the media, I think really looking at industry, we always have to ask ourselves who's profiting from it. So that the anti-aging industry is a thriving multi-billion dollar industry that sells us creams and products and hair dyes and supplements and all kinds of things. And again, they use this militaristic language to tell us that we have to fight the battle. We have to win the war against aging. So I think for us, it's time to really critically reflect on that question, who is benefiting from this? And then to decide for ourselves how we want to define our own aging, how we want to define success, to determine if we do want to give into it or not. And to be very clear, I have nothing against cosmetics or procedures or dyeing hair. I think everybody should do what they want to do to feel beautiful. I take offense with being driven by shame. And I think that's the piece that the media or maybe not media industry can reinforce is that we need to do it because there was some other standard of beauty or standard of success that was set for us. So I think we just need to kind of look a little bit underneath to see what is it that I might get out of this and does it actually meet my goals? And I think another aspect of our society today is maybe I guess we could call it digital ageism because there's an assumption that older adults don't have the knowledge that younger people who practically, be, you know, as soon as they were born had a little, some kind of a computer toy in front of them. Yeah, I think that is a terrific question. Um, and yes, I think it's, it's actually brought us into kind of a whole new way of looking at ageism in terms of digital ageism. We are driven with these assumptions that older people don't like to interact with technology or aren't good with technology. And that frankly just isn't true. Most older people are active users of technology. They enjoy interacting with technology. The difference is, as you said, you might not have been born with it, so there may be a little bit more of a learning curve than there are for people that have been using certain kinds of technology since they were little. But I think the problem runs deeper than that. The problem is that ageism is actually built into the algorithms um, that are in code that are driving the development of these pro of, of digital products and that are driving our understanding of products. So we have people that are essentially younger in the tech industry. The tech industry is notoriously known for being ageist in terms of really focusing on having younger employees. Um, and these folks are using this large data to make decisions about products and the development of products. And this large data doesn't have the voices of older people in it. So it's like we're on this strange merry-go-round when it comes to technology. We develop these products without the input of older people for older people and yet without asking them what it is that they really want. So it does create this whole system of ageism where not only are we not building the right products, we're not even consulting or asking older people for their input on how they want to use them, if they want to use them, and what they want to use. So it, it really does contribute to this really complex story of digital ageism. 
And do you think that there's a relationship between ageism and loneliness? I very much do. I very much do. You know, one of the things the pandemic really showed us is that we're all vulnerable to loneliness um, and that loneliness is not just about older people or any one age group, that we all have certain risk factors and that we're social creatures and we need to be connected to others. So when you think about all of the ways that I described ageism and especially that cultural ageism and that internalized ageism where we create a society where older people don't feel as if their opinions are valued, that they don't feel that there is a place for them to contribute, that has to contribute towards loneliness. If one doesn't feel that they belong, if one doesn't feel that they have a space to be able to make meaning and to give contributions to society, might as well just with you know withdraw and retreat. And I think retirement, as we talked about earlier, can feed that too. It's a withdrawal-based term. And in, you know, instead of thinking of what I used to do, which again would lead to loneliness, to start to think about who I am and who I am becoming is a reframe and a reshift for maybe how we can combat some of that loneliness that is a result of ageism. And that's a good segue into the term elderhood, because we're hearing that hopefully more. And I'd like to hear your definition of elderhood. And I'm wondering if, as we talk about that, if accepting this stage of life can really help older adults re-examine their personal views about aging. I love the term elderhood. I see elderhood as one that has power. We very often talk about the stages of life. We talk about infancy. We talk about toddlerhood, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, adulthood. And then adulthood just goes on and on and on. And now that we could be technically in adulthood for 50, 60, 70 years of our lives, it doesn't seem as if that captures the unique experiences of later life. And I think elderhood has the capacity to do that. To me, elderhood means we continue to develop, we continue to grow, we continue to have opportunities to make meaning, have purpose, um, and contribute. And that's what I like about the term so much. Retirement doesn't do that for me. Older adulthood doesn't do that for me. Elderhood is different. And it also shifts us away from thinking that we have to maintain the roles of midlife to be successful in elderhood. The roles of elderhood can look very, very different. For some people, it may be active contribution. It may be volunteering. It may be continuing to work. It may be being physically engaged. But for some people, elderhood could mean a quiet solitude, an inner reflection, a legacy building. All of those things are developmental. All of those things lead to growth. So I think there's a lot of power in rethinking this term elderhood as a way to shift the narrative from adulthood just goes on and on to we continue to grow and grow in new and meaningful ways. And I'm also wondering if as we older adults think about aging, do you think it's really possible or could be possible to minimize these self-concepts of decline and illness and disability? These are the terms you hear most often 
Uh, we've often heard the, the phrases, older adults get together and they have an organ recital, which they talk about the various uh, health issues that they're having. And so is it possible, you think, to minimize these, these discussions about decline and illness and disability? I think that's such a great question. And I think that ties back to the very beginning of our conversation where we talked about the holistic process of aging and also when we talked about the relationship between ageism and ableism. So I don't think it's about minimizing necessarily, but I think it's about accepting the holistic process of aging. And I know there's a piece of vulnerability with that, but aging does mean decline and growth and maintenance and adaptation. And if we accept the fact that that physical decline and illness is a part of the journey, but then really expand our understanding to focus on how we grow over time, to focus on what we like about ourselves more as we're older, to focus on the things that we could do that we couldn't do. I mean, if you think about a younger version of yourself, I'm sure you can think of things that will make you cringe. I'm sure you can think of things that you go, I'm really glad that I'm not there anymore. I've learned so much. I've grown in so many ways. That is aging too. And we can do that with the disability or the decline. So I, I think it's going back to that holistic process of aging um, and that it includes all of those things. So maybe not minimizing it, but maybe just recognizing that it is holistic. And do you think it's also possible for older adults to stop stereotyping themselves? And if so, how can they do that? I absolutely think they can. And I think it starts with being aware that we're doing it in the first place. Just like I shared my aha moment of recognizing that I was othering myself from the aging population, I think we can each try to catch ourselves and to reframe what aging and growing older actually means for us. And there's a lot of power in that because the truth is that we're all role models for aging. We are all role models. Younger people are looking to each one of us to see how we talk about what it means to be older and to grow older. So, you know, when I said earlier, maybe practice just saying I am old and that's okay. You know, stop using a Band-Aid word. So, yeah, I do think that it's possible. And I think it just starts by having that level of awareness to realize that we are doing it in the first place, that we are disassociating with our aging and our oldness in the first place, and then really starting to question the why, and then really starting to focus on, well, how can I shift my language and my thinking to just accept who I am, where I am today? I also was going to ask you a, a question. I think sometimes so much strife going on in the world today, or at least it's viewed as that. We've got a war going on. The, we've just been dealing with COVID. There's so many factors that are difficult to read about and, and think about when you watch TV or whatever. And oftentimes an older person, myself included, I, I have to admit, say, I'm just glad I'm not young anymore. How do you react to something like that, Tracy? What, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I, I think we can all feel that today. I think you're right. There's just a lot going on in the world, and there has been for, for many years. And I think um, there's a couple things with that comment. I think the world needs the wisdom of elders now more than we ever have. 
if you go and look at some of the literature about how people fared during the pandemic, you can see that older people, although they were physically more vulnerable to the disease, emotionally were quite resilient. And I think it's because of that lived experience. You know, when you've been through some stuff and some traumas and some history, you have the coping mechanisms. So I think to take that elder wisdom that we have, to take all of the the resilience that we have built up over time and to recognize that younger people might not have that right now. Maybe it actually provides opportunities for more intergenerational solidarity, for us to really want to come and help build each other up, to us to maybe even just be a little bit kinder to people of different ages, knowing that we're all collectively going through a very traumatic time. And what you just described uh, Tracy, would you define that as successful aging, or are there more facets of life that you could add to that concept of of successful aging? You know, I think successful aging is uh, should be defined by everyone based on their own particular goals. We kind of went into a trap with successful aging, and it actually came out of my own discipline, where in the 1980s, we started to define successful aging as the maintenance of engagement, good health, and cognitive function. And while those are certainly great goals, ultimately, it's going to leave everybody out because as we age, as we talked about, we are eventually going to experience some level of decline. And we are going to experience health challenges. So I think we each have the opportunity to determine what successful aging means for us. And that could mean starting to focus on instead, what are your personal goals? What is it that you want to see for yourself today, tomorrow, next year? It's okay for all of us to be thinking forward as to what we want to accomplish and what success means. For some people, it could mean running a marathon. It could be jumping out of an airplane. For some people, it could mean learning a new language, reading a new book. For some people, it could just be quiet solitude and reflection. But I think that, you know, we again need to move away from other people defining that for us and taking the power back to define it for ourselves. And do you think that in our society, it's possible to reduce and eliminate ageism? And if so, how? I really do. Um, I think there's so many things that, that we can do. And I think, as I said before, being aware is just the first step. Recognize that we are all in this together. There is no such thing as a non-aging person. This is not just about older people. This is not about younger people. This is about all people. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing to borrow from Simon Sinek is to find your why. Why should this matter? I think this kind of change is going to happen one person at a time. And I think it can matter to us because of our health and longevity, as we talked about it, because of our economy, as we talked about, because of civil rights, as we talked about. There's a lot of reasons for us to care about this, but I think we need to find the one that connects with us. And then I think we need to start really thinking about saying what we actually mean rather than what's easily understood when it comes to age, to really start to critically think about how we use terms like old and young. And if we use them with judgment to maybe rethink what we're saying and to say instead what we actually mean. 
to recognize that we're all role models. And instead of talking about passively becoming older, to start thinking about growing older, to think about it as becoming, to think about our future possible selves. And then I think once we reach that critical mass, we can start to think about it in policy, in law, um, in the way that we might systematically exclude people from our neighborhoods. And all of that, I think, is attainable. I think it's just going to take each person until that critical mass is realized. And given the complexity of this whole topic, and you certainly covered so many facets during this interview, are there any recommended resources that our listeners can learn more about ageism and how to eliminate it or, or think about it? What would, you, what would you tell us that we should know? Absolutely. And I know you won't be surprised when I say start with my book. The book would be a lovely place to start to kind of get the history of ageism and to get a a really good foundation for what ageism is and how it manifests. There's also an excellent clearinghouse called oldschool.info. There's incredible resources, hundreds of resources located on that website um, from books to different Uh, articles and um, consciousness raising guides and book clubs and all kinds of things that you can find. So that's a great one. And then I'll say the World Health Organization has some excellent resources, as well as Changing the Narrative, which is another great organization that's doing work in this space, including rethinking birthday cards, which is one of the the ways that ageism really silently uh, seeps into our everyday. So lots of good stuff and momentum that's happening out there. All right. Well, I certainly want to thank gerontologist Dr. Tracy Gendron, who is also the author, as she had mentioned, of Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. And thank you so much, Tracy, for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com, and there you can access all of the Aging Matters, both the radio shows as well as the TV show content, in addition to the Aging Matters podcasts, which are broadcast on Apple and Spotify. Besides that, you should know about Inkmouth Media. Uh, Aging Matters is produced in association with this company, and that company, the website is inkmouthmedia.com. So, as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Mm-hmm.